Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Those are words from a hymn called It's Well With My Soul. thought it was appropriate to start with those because this is a difficult subject today. Jesus had just began his talk with his disciples regarding his coming and the end of this age by first warning them to be on guard against deception. Next, he listed a number of things that people may point to as signs but are not. Things like earthquakes, disease, disturbances, and war. The next few sentences that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, as recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, speak of a time when Christians will die because of their faith in Jesus. The words that Jesus spoke to tell of a test of faith that will clearly separate those who are Christian in name alone from those who are true disciples of Jesus. These are very hard words for any follower of Jesus to read or hear. Before I continue, I want to ask you a question. Why does a good and sovereign God allow bad things to happen to good people? I'm sure you have, at some point, thought about it, been asked, or heard someone ask this question. I've heard many biblically sound answers to this question. However, I'm not going to answer it for you. I'd like you to seek the answer and keep it in mind for later on in this and the next podcast. I want to tell you a troubling story. I once had a particularly disturbing experience with a friend and co-worker about the topic of denying one's faith in the face of severe persecution. I'll refer to my friend as Peter. (laughs) Somehow, while we were working together, the conversation came around to the topic of Christianity. I'd seen Peter at large gatherings of Christians before, and I wanted to know about his walk with the Lord. Peter gave me his lifelong summary on his church and background. He explained how his current church had been quick to get him involved, even putting him in charge of the fellowship committee. After listening, I said, So those are all the places you've attended church and your actions while at church, but what about your relationship with Jesus? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? He said, I would have to say yes, but I often falter. He explained that he didn't meet up to his own expectations of what he should be doing as a follower of Christ. You know, he said, I'm not doing the things that all good Christians do. Well, after a quick review of the concept of grace with Peter, my curiosity led me to some more pointed questions. I asked him what would happen if he were put in the position of either denying Christ or dying. He said he didn't know. Peter said he knew Jesus was real, and quote, and is God and all that, unquote, but he just wasn't sure about his faith in Jesus. Just a week earlier, someone in the Bible study I was leading at the time asked the question, how could a Christian, knowing what the Bible has to say about the mark of the beast talked about in the book of Revelation, ever take the mark when it meant that you would spend eternity apart from Jesus. Remembering this question, I applied it to my conversation with Peter. I asked Peter, 
If a representative of the future Antichrist came to your home one day with a firing squad and presented you with a choice to die or pledge your allegiance to the Antichrist by taking his mark, thus denying Christ, would you take the mark? Now, failure to take this mark would result in your immediate death. And remember, the Bible makes it clear that those who take the mark will be thrown into the lake of fire. Well, my heart absolutely broke for Peter when he replied, Yes, I'd take it. When faced with something tangible right in front of him that threatens to kill him, Peter stated he would opt for trying to save his life now, when in the end, he would lose it for eternity. Well, years later now, my prayer continues to be for Peter that he'd work out his salvation with fear and trembling. It's this type of scenario that I put to Peter, which will most likely be responsible for a great falling away of people from the Christian faith during the tribulation period in the future. Certainly being faced with taking the mark of the Antichrist would be the quintessential and final test, but there will be many that fall away for other reasons before then. Reasons where a person is forced to make decisions. Do I follow what Jesus wants and align myself with him? Or do I follow what the world wants, which is in direct conflict with Jesus, and align myself with the world? During the future time of persecution described by Jesus, many who do not possess real faith from God will turn away from Christianity. Those who read or hear the words of Jesus contained in Matthew 24, verse 9, who are not indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, will be tempted to interpret these words to mean anything other than what they truly mean. There will be a future time of great persecution and betrayal directed towards followers of Jesus. Brother will betray brother, and sons will betray their fathers. Because of the level of persecution, those that are not sincere in their beliefs will turn their backs on or fall away from the faith. This persecution will be aggravated by the man of sin and lawlessness, also known as the Antichrist. Let's look at the scripture that I'm talking about. First, from Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Then you will be betrayed and handed over to be persecuted, and you will be killed and hated by all people because of my name. Uh, we read the parallel passage in Mark chapter 13, verse 9. But you watch yourselves, for they will betray you and hand you over to councils, and in assemblies you will be beaten and you will be brought before rulers and kings on my behalf as a testimony against them. Luke 21:12 puts it this way. Now, before all of these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, betraying and delivering you to the assemblies and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers. Remember in the last podcast we talked about things like earthquakes. Well, are there more earthquakes now than ever? Has there ever been a time when some war was not taking place in the world? Has there ever been a period in history when disease and famine have not been a factor? Likewise, in the last 2,000 years, when have there not been widespread instances of persecution of both Jews and Christians, 
In fact, according to church tradition, almost all of the original disciples of Jesus, with the Apostle John being the possible exception, died a violent, painful martyr's death for bearing the name of Jesus as their Lord. Christians, even the most noteworthy, do not live charmed lives and are not exempt from harm. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off the temple in Jerusalem, stoned, and finally clubbed over the head as he was praying for those beating him to death. According to church tradition, the Apostle Peter may have been crucified upside down on a Roman cross, and the Apostle Paul was beheaded for his faith just outside of Rome. In 69 AD, according to church tradition again, Andrew was scourged and tied to a cross rather than nailed. It took him two days to die under those circumstances. He preached the gospel to those who passed by as he was dying. Thomas was supposedly run through by a spear in India after preaching the gospel there and in Greece. According to church tradition, Matthew, the author of one of the Gospels containing the Olivet Discourse, was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia by a swordsman working for a king whom Matthew criticized for his immoral behavior. John Fox's Book of Martyrs, first published in 1563, tells the story of thousands of Christians losing their lives because they decided to follow Jesus. These persecution-related Olivet Discourse verses that I'm reading might appear to be just another item on Jesus' list of bad stuff which has happened in the past and is going to happen again in the future. But it doesn't mean that it's the end of the world. That is, if not for one word and a change in tone in the whole passage. The word is, then. This simple word is talking about a different period of time in the future from the now period of time. The Greek word, tote, can be translated as, at that time. To expand on this and paraphrase what Jesus said would be to say, quote, Then, during this future period of time you're asking me about, these next things will take place, unquote. Then is meant to denote the future period of time directly pertinent to the question Jesus is answering, which was, What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? There is a conflict to resolve between the gospel accounts of this passage. Whereas the Matthew account reads like the persecution in question will take place at a future specific time, in contrast, the Mark passage simply read by itself could mean that the persecution is nonspecific and happening before or during a specific time. And the Luke passage even makes it sound like the persecution will take place before all of the events we've already discussed take place. Well, the Luke account, when read in English, can be confusing until it's studied closely. It says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you. In our simple understanding, this would mean that the before whatever we were just reading about would occur, this next stuff we are reading about will take place. That would appear to be in direct contradiction with what I'm saying about war, famine, pestilence, and earthquakes having all been taking place in the norm for the last 2,000 years. Reading Luke in this simple way would mean that the persecution that he's talking about now must take place before the war, the famine, pestilence, and earthquakes. How could that be? 
Well, the key to understanding the wording found in the book of Luke is to understand the use of the Greek word day. Day starts off verse 12. Day is a conjunction. The Mount's concise Greek-English dictionary has important things to say about this little word. It says, among other uses, day, quote, serves also to mark the resumption of an interrupted discourse, unquote. In this case, Jesus has been speaking about something other than the original or main topic, and this word marks a point where they're going back on track or back to the original subject. For example, in English, Jesus might say, Now, going back to address these things you are asking me about that will occur in conjunction with my coming. This translation makes the most sense in this case. Any other way of reading this sentence in Luke does not reconcile the passage with the other Gospels. In Luke 21.7, the disciples ask when, quote, these things, unquote, will occur. Further down the passage now in Luke 21.12, Jesus responds by saying to paraphrase, Now, going back to your original question, before these things you're asking me about, like the end of the age and my return, will occur, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. It's important to understand the fine parsing out of the Luke passage in order to resolve the conflict with the Matthew and the Mark accounts. There is no conflict when the scripture in Luke is translated in this way. We've not changed the meaning of any words as they were written in the original language, only selected a viable alternative, which is a normal, natural way to understand the word day during the time it was used by Luke in order to convey Jesus' meaning. It's just another way of saying, now, to get back and directly address what you're asking me about. So, we're dealing with one talk alone that Jesus gave as recorded by three different humans, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When defined by each other and in context, all three gospel accounts can be understood to mean that the persecution spoken of is a persecution of a future time, specifically the time period that occurs just before the end of this age and the return of Jesus. We've shifted gears from talking about what Jesus warns his disciples are not signs of the end, things that take place all through history. We're now shifting gears and talking about the things that will be occurring around the time of the end of the age and the return of Jesus. In the last episode of the Called Out Cafe, I spoke a little bit about hard and soft signs. Since persecution has always been a part of Jewish and Christian history, can it be looked at as a sign that Jesus is about to return? Well, my opinion is yes and no. In order to explain why I answer this way, I'd like to expand on the concept of what I call hard signs and what I used to call soft signs, but now just refer to as characteristics of the end of the age. Such characteristics are those things that may be prophetically associated with the end of the age, but are not unique to it. Soft signs or characteristics are subjective to mere mortals who are limited in their perspective. We don't have a complete knowledge of what has happened in history, and we certainly don't know what the future holds outside of what God has told us will occur. Because of this, we don't know if earthquakes, famine, pestilence, disturbances, and persecution are worse now than they have ever been in history. 
even if those things are worse now than ever before in history, we don't know if they're going to get worse or better in the future. Things may get worse than they are now before Jesus returns, and then they might get better, and then they might get twice as bad again. And none of it has anything to do with the return of Jesus or the end of the age. God alone has the perspective required. For humans, these characteristics can only be used as secondary evidence to confirm that observable, quote, hard signs, unquote, are the real thing. Hard signs, at least the way that I think of them, are things that cannot be chalked up to the natural course of events. Hard signs are centered on specific details and generally follow a sequence set out in prophecy. They would defy all odds to occur more than once in the future, so they will likely not do so. Although hard signs are mostly unique events, when related to the future Antichrist, some may have occurred previously in history under a previous Antichrist empire. There are relatively very few hard signs. A couple examples would be the abomination of desolation, uh, which Jesus is going to talk about in just a few verses. This previously occurred under the Greek and Roman empires. It's happened a couple times before, and it will happen one more time in the future. Another example would be the seven-year covenant that's broken 1260 days or halfway through it. Um, and this has never previously occurred, and I will talk extensively more about all of this stuff, but I'm just uh, giving you a couple of quick examples. And another example would be a worldwide earthquake that comes in close proximity to the sun going dark, the moon appearing blood red, and the stars appearing to fall from the sky. Those are very specific signs, and they'll be hard to miss. So, an example of a soft sign or characteristic of the end helping to confirm a hard sign would be something like the great persecution of Jews and Christians after a future seven-year covenant with Israel is broken by a dynamic, powerful ruler who sets himself up to be worshipped. The soft sign being the persecution, the hard sign being the covenant related to the Antichrist-like activity. So, Yes, part of the answer is soft signs should be watched for, but not relied upon by themselves as being indicative that the return of Jesus is imminent. We read in the book of Revelation that all of the things Jesus has already mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, which have happened throughout history, will in fact play a part in the last days before the end of the age. However, without the presence of any hard signs, we'll only be blindly guessing as to how close we are to the return of Jesus. Please don't forget, if you have any questions about this stuff, you can always email me at doug at dughooley.com. Well, Jesus is now speaking about those things which will take place just prior to his return. One of those things is persecution. He'll soon speak about the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation committed by the Antichrist, and the Antichrist's reign of terror. Now, don't worry, I'll talk extensively about the Antichrist in future podcasts. Jesus connects all of those events together. In this way, Jesus is making this particular future persecution that he's talking about unique to the reign of the Antichrist. And that's what sets it apart from persecution that's taken place over the last 2,000 years. 
There are specifics given in the book of Revelation about why this different persecution associated with the end of the age will take place. In Revelation chapter 13, we read that the Antichrist will expect to be worshipped. Penalty for not worshipping him will be the threat of death. He'll expect people to demonstrate their allegiance with him by taking his, quote, mark, unquote, in order to be associated with him and be able to buy, sell, or trade goods and services. To stay on track for now, I'm going to avoid the subject of what form this mark will take. Let's just think in terms of whatever form this mark takes, you'll have to have it to buy, sell, or trade goods. Because of this, as people choose eating and temporary survival over death and imprisonment, a falling away from the faith will occur. Family and friends will betray each other under an extreme Gestapo-like culture, which leads to imprisonment and death penalties. Persecution has always taken place in the past. However, the soft sign or characteristic of persecution, accomplished for the above specific reasons, will be one of the ways that we positively identify the future Antichrist. It will be a persecution based on a failure to align yourself with the Antichrist, worship him, and play by his rules. Jesus tells his disciples that because of him, people, or non-followers of Jesus, will hate his followers. This situation takes us far beyond the prophetic end times topic. It happens all the time in our world, as it's happened all through the last two millennia. Persecution of Christians, followers of Christ, got off to a strong start even before Jesus was crucified. It only got worse from there. The type of persecution Jesus prophesied about has been fulfilled many times over the last 2,000 years, but not ultimately fulfilled for the last time. Being hated because of Jesus is not a big selling point in Christian evangelical circles. No one wants to hear about suffering and losing all this world has to offer on account of belonging to Jesus. What kind of good news is that? How can we expect to lead people to Christ with that kind of sales pitch? Of course, any Christian who's attempting to, quote, do the Lord's work, unquote, and, quote, when souls, unquote, for Jesus, is very hesitant about pointing out how that to become a Christian or a follower of Christ is to become hated by the world. However, what true believers know far outweighs the extreme challenges of being hated by the world. To be a true believer is to have been given faith by God to believe that His Son is our only hope, not for temporary but for eternal salvation. It's for one to know that he or she is reborn as a willing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, adopted into God's family, and that they have then have an eternal supernatural spirit that's not of this world. It is the Holy Spirit within the reborn followers of Christ which cannot deny the truth. Come what may, lose what we may, be hated by whom we may. As far as the non-Christian worldview is concerned, it's not cool to be a real, not pop culture, follower of Christ. To follow Christ means that you will not attempt to conform or buy into the self-centered, materialistic, godless, evil society where we live. 
It means that you'll attempt to wisely circumnavigate your way around it or through it without becoming a part of it. At times, it's not possible to avoid it. It's at those times that decisions are forced as to who you will follow, Jesus or the world. It's no mystery why people of the world don't like a true follower of Christ. On the surface, the Christian sounds judgmental. Many Christians are, unfortunately, overly judgmental. They point fingers and attempt to save the lost, what I call, one sin at a time. Yet, other Christians may also appear to be judgmental without ever saying a word or pointing a finger. These Christians point out, simply through only their life choices, not their words, that the societal system they are surrounded by, the one most people wholeheartedly take part in, is evil. Some Christians appear to stand in judgment of others only because they choose not to participate in the system. They therefore can appear to those who are not following Christ to be, quote, too good, unquote, for what is good enough for everyone else. This is just as offensive to the non-believer as those who are more outspokenly judgmental. Christians are called to be lights unto the world, and true followers of Christ, simply by emulating the one they are following, inherently are a source of light. That light source can make other people very uncomfortable. Rats and cockroaches scatter when the light comes on. Likewise, those who are depending on their own righteousness to be saved are most comfortable under the cover of darkness. I'm not talking about Christians overtly shining the light of truth on people, but passively shining the light by leading a life pleasing to their Messiah. I personally don't believe Scripture teaches Christians to judge the behaviors of non-Christians or to whack them over the head with a Bible. When well-intentioned Christians do this, it seldom results in more than simply being offensive. And although the gospel and Jesus will offend, our goal is not to be offensive, but constructive. God can use people to convict the non-believer, and he does all the time. But judging and convicting people of the world is the work of God and his Holy Spirit. I'm only saying that the ambient light that true followers of Christ give off through reflecting Christ's own light is offensive all by itself to non-believers. We don't even need to try to be offensive. Uh, what non-Christians perceive as judgment then is soon turned back around on the follower of Christ by the non-believer. They'll tell us, judge not, lest you be judged. And I couldn't be truer. Because most non-Christians don't understand the concept of grace, and because all humans, including Christians, are weak and self-centered, Christians are called hypocrites, as others easily find fault with their lives. A disciple of Christ will be truly sorry when they've engaged in a harmful, unchristlike activity, while the non-Christian will see no harm, especially because, quote, everyone else is doing it, unquote. The non-Christian will see no wrong, because they have not been called by the Holy Spirit to be a people that are set apart. Jesus once prayed for his disciples and all of those who would ever come to know him. He was quite clear when he prayed in reference to his followers throughout time, the following. This is found in John chapter 17, verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even 
as I am not of the world. Like Jesus, his followers are no longer of this world. Those that remain a part of the world will hate those that are not a part of the world. Those that have been chosen by God have been purchased out of the world with the very blood of Jesus. Those chosen in this way are called to and set apart for a high eternal office of priesthood. The Apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why would a royal priest engage in activities of the other master, the world? Why would a servant of the Most High, all-seeing creator of the universe, act like they were ignorant of his reality by engaging in activities which are embraced by the world's master, Satan? There are those that attempt to follow Christ and still engage in following the world's systems. They are double-minded and therefore unstable in all their ways. See James chapter 1 verse 8 for what I'm talking about. They're attempting to serve two masters, and that, according to Jesus, cannot be done. Every new believer figuratively has stood at a fork in the road when answering the question of whether or not to follow Jesus' path. As Jesus summons the new believer down the narrow road, they have to make a decision. Follow the path of Jesus, or follow the path that leads to destruction. Simply stated, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 12:30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Being hated by the world is very difficult, especially when the world includes your family and co-workers. Maybe even through life circumstances, it includes your spouse. Yes, being hated by the world sucks, but in the end, there is no question that it's worth it. The cost-benefit analysis is not even close. It's investing a dollar in this world and receiving a never-ending supply of dollars in our account tax-free that can never be taken away in the next. This current life for the disciple of Christ is clearly not about the temporary good times that the world has to offer. We may wisely try and avoid the forks in the road, but this life is to a high degree about coming to the fork in the road and deciding who you will follow. It's about deciding if you'll live by your five senses and your temporary carnal nature and desires in this age, or by faith in the eternal age to come. The person who's not sure that it makes sense to forsake the world and follow Christ down the narrow road, at the cost of being hated by the world, is as Philippians 2.12 says, one that truly needs to, quote, work out their salvation with fear and trembling, unquote. That is a person who needs to work out if they have received the calling to be set apart or holy by and for Jesus. Christian martyrdom, dying for the cause of Christ, started with the stoning of Stephen mentioned in the book of Acts. It was almost constant during the first 300 years of church history, and it occurred all too often even during the Reformation. It continues to this day in such places as the Sudan, 
You can now even watch a video on YouTube of your brothers in Christ being beheaded on a beach by members of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, if for some reason you'd ever choose to do so, and I don't recommend that you do. People dying for Christ in our time is a tragic reality. Based on the words of Jesus that follow, and several passages in the book of Revelation, there's reason to believe that there will be unprecedented persecution of the followers of Jesus associated with the time just prior to his return. This is not a popular doctrine. 21st century Western world Christians do not want to think that it's possible to be put through a time of suffering. They'd prefer that God would miraculously keep them from such a painful inconvenience those before them have suffered. Well, visiting a church one Sunday several years ago, my wife Angela and I noticed that one of the Sunday school classes that followed the surface was going to be about the second coming of Christ. We thought it'd be interesting to see what they had to say. It was soon made clear that the knowledge of the husband and wife teaching the class was gained through their reading of a couple of popular end times books. I recognized the teaching. They quoted Hal Lindsey and the late Dave Hunt. I asked them to tell me why they believed in the theory which says that Jesus will secretly catch away his church prior to any persecution, trials, or tribulations taking place. They told me it was true because the church is the bride of Christ, and that Jesus is a gentleman who would never allow anything bad to happen to his bride. This same reason was given as substantiation of the pre-tribulation rapture theory by Dr. David Jeremiah in his book, Jesus' Final Warning. This reasoning is a real tough sell for me, given what scriptures say and 2,000 years of Christian martyrdom have to say. I firmly believe, as Dr. Jeremiah does, that the elect followers of Christ are not appointed to suffer the wrath of God or His judgment. Where we part ways is that I separate out the events of the future tribulation period. First, there are those things that will take place as a consequence of living in a fallen world, especially under the future Antichrist. Then, there will be those events that are actually the results of God pouring out His wrath on the world during the great and terrible, quote, Day of the Lord, unquote. The church will clearly not be present for the latter. There have been several antichrists in the past, kings who have been a part of the great beast seen in the book of Revelation. During the Apostle John's day, the angel told John that there had been five such people in the past, and one currently existed during John's day. Those individuals, under the direct inspiration of Satan, also hated the chosen people of God and persecuted them. Persecution at the hands of a future antichrist will be nothing new. How is it that anyone thinks they can explain away what Jesus had to say about the persecution of his followers? It's easy if you're willing to believe in a myth that's been handed down by those in authority in the church. The myth says that the church will be caught away from the earth prior to any trials, tribulation, or persecution associated with the end of the age. Such is the case with the classic pre-tribulation rapture theory which a large percentage of evangelical Christians believe to be true, but could never defend why they believe it. Since that theory came into popularity in the mid-1800s, it's been handed down from generation to generation and included in popular reference Bibles. Naturally, if it's in print in the Bible, it must be right, right? 
I'm not going to make a case here for or against the pre-tribulation rapture theory. All I will say for now is that there is a great difference between not being appointed to God's wrath, which Jesus' followers will not, and being persecuted and hated on account of Jesus' name, something that we are clearly told by Jesus will happen. Hold on to the pre-tribulation rapture theory here if you must. Just realize what Jesus is saying. His followers will be subject to great persecution. That's all I'd like you to get here. If Jesus is not addressing his church in Matthew 24, 9, and Mark 13, 9, and Luke 21, 12, the passages that we're talking about that are regarding persecution because of his namesake, who then is he addressing according to the pre-tribulation rapture theory? Pre-tribulation rapture theory advocate and longtime preacher, author, and radio evangelist Dr. J. Vernon McGee states the following. Obviously, he, Jesus, is not addressing the church, but the nation of Israel. The affliction he's talking about is anti-Semitism on a worldwide scale. So, J. Vernon McGee believes that Jesus is addressing the Jews here in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And he thinks that the persecution is essentially anti-Semitism. Well, Jews have certainly been persecuted since the time of Christ. Millions have died for their faith. They're still God's chosen people and have an extremely important part to play in the future. According to the book of Revelation, this will include enduring great persecution in the end. Yet, this question must be answered. Since when are Jews hated because they're associated with the name of Jesus? Jesus, the Messiah they rejected. First century Jews were some of the leading persecutors of the followers of Jesus. This included the Apostle Paul before his miraculous conversion to Christianity. The words Jesus is speaking here are words of warning to his followers, Christians. This would include the group of believers that some call Messianic Jews, those ethnic Jews that come to accept Jesus as their Lord and Messiah. Earlier in the day, when Jesus found himself giving this talk on the Mount of Olives, he had left the temple after being rejected by the Jewish leaders. People of the Jewish faith are clearly not people who would be persecuted for Jesus' namesake. There are several other places in the New Testament that we see members of the ecclesia, the true church, being told that they will suffer persecution. For example, Jesus acknowledged the persecution, tribulation, and suffering that the seven churches in Revelation had been and would be going through. The good news in all of this is that the persecution of the followers of Christ, past, present, and future, is a very temporary affliction that cannot do harm to the part of the Christian that will live forever. If you're a genuine elect of God who has been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, physical death is nothing to fear. According to Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, when the elect follower of Jesus dies, their mortality is swallowed up in life, eternal life. He tells us that to be absent from our present temporary bodies upon our death is to be present with the Lord. If you're struggling with the thoughts of dying, 
I'm going to suggest that that may be a good thing. Wrestling with such thoughts ahead of time can be instructive of our true beliefs or faith. Given what Scripture tells us about death and persecution, what are your reasons for fearing it? These are things I believe we need to work out and wrestle with. Failure to work out such matters for some will result in their being a part of those who have fallen away from the faith. Whether or not their falling away occurs because of the actions of the Antichrist or for some other reason before that time. God has given us today as a precious opportunity to examine ourselves and determine who it is we'll follow when we come to the fork in the road. Next time, we'll continue to discuss following Jesus during times of persecution, betrayal, and falling away from the faith. Until then, thanks for listening. God bless, and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.